0: In episode 468 with Gregory David Roberts, we dive so deep into so many spiritual principles that have changed his life. We talk about self-worth, purpose, fear, and so much more. Welcome to the Melissa Ambrosini Show. I'm your host, Melissa, best-selling author of Mastering Your Mean Girl, Open Wide, and Comparisonitis. And I'm here to remind you that love is sexy, healthy is liberating Hey beautiful and welcome back to the show. I am so excited about this conversation because this man is incredible. And for those of you that have never heard of Gregory, he is an author, composer and artist. And he is best known for his critically acclaimed novel Shantaram. I'm sure you've heard of it. Shantaram has sold over 7 million copies and was hailed a masterpiece by critics. Shantaram is based on raw elements of his life as a fugitive and is translated into 44 languages and sold in 116 countries. Pretty amazing. You will hear in this episode, some incredibly jaw dropping stories and experiences that he has been through from prison to solitary confinement, to escaping prison, to being a heroin addict, to robbing banks and so much more. What this man has been through And the way that he has transformed these experiences and turned them into spiritual lessons and the growth and the evolution that he has had along this journey is just so inspiring. So I am pumped for you guys to hear this conversation. And for everything that we mention in today's episode, you can check out in the show notes and that's over at melissaambrosini.com forward slash 468. Now, without further ado, let's bring on the incredible Gregory David Roberts. Greg, what an honor and a privilege it is to have you here with us today. I'm so excited for this conversation. But before we dive in, can you tell us what you had for breakfast this morning?
1: (laughs) Firstly, thank you very much for inviting me. It's so nice to be with you. And you look fantastic. You look so radiant. It's no wonder you're an inspiration to so many people. I skip breakfast. I'm not a breakfast guy. I usually don't eat till about 4 p.m. I'm a kind of daily fasting person, and so I, I live on coffee with milk and sugar until about 4 p.m., and I might have three or four of those to keep me going, but uh, yes, yeah, I, I usually skip breakfast. I know it's the, it's terrible advice. Any kids out there don't listen to this and don't take this advice, It's a diet that works for me because I have focused more on regular fasting, on staying hungry and reaching the point where you are tremendously hungry and then passing that, pushing past it. And then when you finally do eat to enjoy every single second of it, fully in the moment of eating it because you and not wasting that that sort of fasting time. That's not something I recommend for others. It's just something I do.
0: Mm -hmm. And then so do you just have one meal a day at four o'clock?
1: Usually, yes. One, uh, and then maybe a snack, a midnight snack. Once again, please don't take this advice, anybody out there. <laughs> <laughs> I, But seriously, if, uh, 100% honestly, ice cream and chocolate. And, you know, I love chocolate. So I'll just break off a chunk of that around midnight and eat like, I don't know, six pieces from the block and a bowl of ice cream at midnight. And that'll get me going until about 2 a.m. or 3 a.m. when I finally drag my carcass to sleep, have a shower, go to bed and get up early and start again. I have to get up early because my cat wakes me up at 5.30 every morning to be let out. So that's my usual routine.
0: Oh my goodness. So very different to a lot of the guests that I have on this show that are like, go to bed early, eat really well. You are doing the complete opposite, but look at you, you're thriving. You look amazing.
1: Oh, thank you very much. I feel very good. I think Jamaica has a lot to do with that. In between, you can get great, you know, when you do eat, you can have fantastic fruits here. There's still so much organic food in Jamaica. So much of that that's grown is still grown in a rich soil of Jamaica that hasn't yet been contaminated with all sorts of things. The water is clear and clean, weather is conducive to it, and so it's a great place to stay healthy and be healthy. It's an outdoor culture. You live outdoors. We spend 90% of our time outdoors, so I'm only in the studio when I'm creating music here in my little studio, which you're looking at now. And most of the doors are always open for the when I'm recording. And we're outside in the courtyard or here in open space most of the time. So a lot of my I don't know, if I look okay, it's a lot of it's down in Jamaica.
0: Mm, sunshine, fresh air, nature, all of that goodness. So you have had such a very big and colorful life. And I feel like we need 17 hours to dive into everything that you have been through. But just to give you a little bit of a backstory, so My husband read your book maybe six months ago. He devoured it. He loved it. And he turned to me as soon as he finished and was like, you have to read this and you have to get him on your podcast because his story is incredible and so inspiring. And he was like, you just have to chat to him. So here we are. But I actually heard of your book, Shantaram, many, many years ago. My older sister read it, and I remember people walking around with this brick-sized book, and for those that have never seen how big Shantaram is, it is a big book. It is thick. And at the time, I was like, I, you know, that's just too big a book for me to read. So I didn't read it back then. And my sister loved it. And I remember people talking about it and saying just how inspiring it was and how uh, incredibly written it was. And so then when my husband read it and we have very similar tastes and he was like, you've got to read this, babe, and you've got to get him on. I was like, okay, and okay. So I am so pumped to have you here. I want to chat about your story and I want to chat about some of the biggest spiritual lessons that you have experienced along the way. But for those that have never heard about you or heard about your story, can you take us back to that time in your life where you were not living the life that you live now, where your marriage ended and you lost custody of your daughter and you turned to drugs? Can you take us back there and tell us what that was like for you?
1: Somewhat reluctantly, sure. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, it's very simple now when you look, when I look back. It's, at the time, it seemed to be an overwhelming thorny hedge of complications surrounding me in every direction. I couldn't burst free from it. That thorny hedge was really only my own weakness of character. And as soon as I realized that, <laughs> decades later, everything changed in my life. I just didn't have the strength of character to deal with the situation properly. I know now what I should have done. I should have kept working hard, saved money, been a regular dude, and looked after the possibility that my child would come back to me because they do and if you're there, they'll come back to you. I didn't think that way I was too young and too weak-minded, I guess, but I thought that's it. it's all over and through weakness of character, I turned to heroin and you know from that point, it's a downward spiral and a pretty fast one if you hurl yourself into it. The key characteristics really are I had a very good education, very good family. They supported me throughout my childhood. They fed us well. They clothed us well. They always put a good roof over our heads and looked after us. They were good people. I, My brother is an example of that. He's one of Australia's leading musicians and creative. He is the best songwriter in the country, in my view. I'd say one of the best in the world by far. And he has expressed love and creativity his entire life, since his childhood right through. And he's an expression of what should have come from that loving home. I was contaminated with ego and all sorts of other problems that I had within myself. So that led me to be the wayward brother going astray. And so I, had a, I didn't have any excuse for the drug taking. I didn't have any excuse for going to prison, for committing crimes and going. When I got there, I met men who did. I met so many men who did not have the background that I had, who did not have the, the loving parents, who did not have the really good education and so on. They didn't have any of those opportunities. And, and here I was with every opportunity. And um, I'd thrown myself into that situation. So, you know, you look back and you you see, okay, this was me all along that did this. I My weakness led me into the addiction. My weakness led me into committing crimes and so on, and then eventually led me to prison. My weakness, in a sense, led me to escaping from prison. When it got super tough in the jail, I busted out and I escaped, and it became a pattern in my life to run away, and whenever things got too hard and too tough to run away. And I didn't even realize that until much later. And we'll probably get to that in, in your question.
0: Yeah, wow. Okay, I've not had anyone on the podcast in almost 500 episodes. I've not had anyone escape from prison, right? So tell me about this. And you were talking about committing crimes and in the book you say that you were the nicest robber. You know, you were this, this nice robber, but you pleaded guilty to bank robbery. Talk to me about... What was going through your mind when you were robbing robbing that bank, and then when you were escaping prison?
1: Well, each time, I don't know what goes through the minds. I've spoken to a few guys who are armed robbers. Um, I met quite a few behind bars, but I'm not really sure what goes through their minds. It's one of the things they didn't really talk about and go into. What went through my mind every time I did a robbery was that I would be killed. I had a toy pistol. And I fully intended, I I assumed every single time that there would be a police officer undercover or a security guard with a gun waiting for me, expecting me, because I did so many of these foolish robberies, horrible robberies. I did so many of them that I expected every single time to be shot dead. And my dream death, and it's called death by cop, my dream death was that I would point the toy pistol at them and go bang, and they would shoot me dead, thinking it was a real gun. And I fully expected to be killed every single time, and I wasn't. And it was always a surprise to me that I walked out of the place and kept going and no one killed me. So that's what I expected each time. When I did the escape, I fully expected to be shot on the wall. And because I escaped you know, next to the front gate, right next to the machine gun towers and automatic weapon, and their job is to shoot you if they see you there. They're derelict in their duty if they don't. And my only point when I got on the wall was to lean over so that if I got shot, I would fall outside the prison and not inside the prison and that I would die outside the prison in free air and not inside that prison. So I fully expected to be killed and I wasn't killed and kept going. So that's what was in my mind in both of those situations.
0: Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. And then you went to India. So you fleed to India. How? How did you do that?
1: Well, I uh, probably have to, you know, they say names have been changed to protect the innocent and so on. There's probably names have been changed to protect the guilty. No, uh, there's things, there are people who help me and, and so on. I don't think anybody ever does anything like this alone. When, you, when you're on the run, you rely on people to help you. And if they don't, you get caught very very quickly. People help me and because they, they got to know me. People who knew nothing about me met me. I fled from the East Coast to the West Coast to Perth, and after the escape, and pledged not to do this again, not to do any robberies again, not to commit any crimes, and to basically try to stay free, was my only intention. And I met people there, and worked there in a factory, and was work working as a welder, three months after the escape from prison, I was working as a welder in a factory, and which had been my trade as a young man, and anonymously working away with good, decent, honest men, and hiding among them, so to speak, And uh, I met some people who over that time of six months who got to like me very much and wanted to do a business with me. And I had to be honest with them and say, look, this is the truth of it. I I ran away from prison. And one of them said, all right, I'm going to help you to get out of Australia because you really need to leave this country. And that person helped me to leave. And uh, so I eventually made it to India. And the intention when I got to India was to keep going to Germany. I thought if I'm on the run with a price on my head, I need to be in a country where everyone looks like me. And my grandfather was German, and I thought I could pass for German, and so I thought I'll go there and hide among the German people and look German. But then I got to Bombay, and I tore up the onward ticket because I fell madly in love with the city of Bombay and with the Indian people around me. I felt as though I'd been there before, as I'd lived there before. I was so connected with India that I tore up the ticket and stayed there. And that's sort of how the Indian chapter began.
0: Wow. And then you ended up in Frankfurt. How did you end up in Frankfurt? And you got caught in Frankfurt. So how did that unfold?
1: I was smuggling for about five years, nonstop to Africa and Europe, mostly passports, but also currencies, gold and various other things. And one trip after the Lockerbie disaster, the security protocols were enhanced at Frankfurt airport. And I happened to be on the next flight coming through when the security protocols were enhanced and they detected, did a much more thorough search on everything that we had and found everything that I was carrying with me. They didn't know who I was, they just knew that I was a smuggler. And so they put me into a prison in Frankfurt and then through fingerprint identification, they realized that they had Australia's most wanted man. So I spent 19 months there fighting the expedition, I had to teach myself how to read and write German in order to do that, but it was well worth doing it. And uh, for anybody out there, never give up on the law because if you study and apply the law, in your case, the law is actually a blunt instrument and it's something that works for them and it's something that works for us. Them meaning the justice system, but also it works for us. It works for anyone else if you study it. So I won many concessions in that German court and then was eventually extradited to Australia.
0: Which is where you served two years in solitary confinement.
1: Yeah,
0: I can't even imagine what that Two years was like. Take us back to those two years in solitary confinement. What was that like?
1: Wow, you love taking people back to the hard time, don't you? (laughs) They're solitary. Yeah, I mean, uh, the weird thing is, of course, when you're going through it, it's a kind of hell. And there are men around you going crazy and breaking and all sorts of things. And you feel like breaking yourself. And there's only so many push ups you can do before you go nuts, if you know what I mean. Yes, there is a sort of hell in it, but having done it and gone through it, and I look back, it was the making of me as a person, and I needed it in my life. I I needed the universe, the world, society to shake me very, very hard, put me in a box, and say, You need to think things through, buddy, because you're going to die or you're going to hurt somebody seriously. So thankfully, I never killed anyone, but you're going to, something can happen, and you've got to stop. And it took that to wake me up, to stop me, and I'm really grateful. See, the thing is, I n- deserve to be put in prison. I was a menace to society. I broke the law and I was a menace to society. I put fear into people and I'm still deeply ashamed of it and remorseful for it. I, I literally think of it every single day and I deserved it to go to prison. I don't think I even began to understand that until the second year of solitary confinement, And then I realized after New Year's Eve, um, it's a big moment in prison. New Year's Eve's a big one. You can hear the people celebrating outside. You can remember all the fun you used to have on a New Year's Eve, and then you don't get that because you're locked up. And you can hear the, you know, fireworks and people celebrating and car horns and everything and shouting going. And you can hear the celebration. And for them, it's hello, Happy New Year. For you, it's one more year finished and another one begins, and so on. And it's a it's a critical turning point well when you're in solitary and they tell you you've got two years and you do the first year into the second year you know what a year is because you just did it so you know what that year is g- going to be in for you in the one coming you know what those months are going to be like you, you know it and you know what you're going to go through and for me it was a breaking point when i heard the celebrations outside i realized that i had to change and the very next morning when the door opened um one of the officers opened the door to give me something and I said, Happy New Year. And he almost had a heart attack because it with a big smile, you know, Happy New Year, and so on. And um, uh, it was a change from that moment, I realized I, I have to change. I can't expect the system to change. I can't expect other people to change. They may, they may not, but I certainly can. And I changed my attitude to everyone, every person I spoke to. I realized I can't look, see what, can I finish this a kind of long thought? I don't want to intrude on your time, but. This is how you start a prison sentence. You mark off the days, you mark off the weeks, and the older cons are going to come and tell you you can't do that. You do it year by year. You, you know you mark off days and weeks you're going to go mad, do it year by you, year, just tear off that year and start the next one. So I kind of got their attitude to this, and what you 're thinking is when I get out i'm going to do this when I get out i'm going to do that when I get out, oh my god, i'm going to do the other thing all day long, so you're thinking thinking i'm going when I get out, when I get out and then In solitary in that second year, I realized I can't think about, I can't think when I get out I'm going to do this. I could die tomorrow. Um, I could slip in the shower, crack my head and die. It can happen. Anything. I could have a heart attack. Anything could happen. This is my life. I can't wait for my life to begin when my prison sentence expires. This is my life. So what am I going to do with it? And I decided to become a teacher and to do what I knew I could do, which was to teach people to read and write who could not, and especially life sentence prisoners. For me, to be to be denied the access through simply not being able to read and write, to a library of treasures, of stories from the Count of Monte Cristo, which you're living, to all sorts of other great stories that are right there for you to be denied. This is, is an extra torment, an extra punishment for me. So I focused on it, and I have to say in final thought on this, from that moment, I wasn't thinking when I get out, I'm gonna do this. It was each day, what am I gonna to do tomorrow? What am I gonna to do tomorrow? How am I gonna make this better? How am I gonna do this better? And by the time my sentence expired, I was writing to my mother saying, if I don't get my parole, I won't be disappointed because this, the work I'm doing is so important and the time is passing, passing so fast, I can't keep up and, and I won't be finished my work by the time I get released. And so that's how quickly time was flying by instead of day by day and so on. It was that question of putting purpose into your life, having a purpose and knowing that you can shape your destiny. You don't have to let the world shape it for you.
0: (sighs) Wow. (laughs) What, What a mindset shift, huh? Yes. What a mindset shift.
1: And thank you, solitary confinement.
0: Totally. But when you went into your second year, you still had another year of solitary confinement and then you had a further four years in the main prison. which then completed your whole 10-year sentence. But that second year in solitary, you weren't teaching people how to read and write then. So was that just a matter of working on your mindset every single day and being present? Like, how did you bring purpose into your every day in that second year when you're in solitary?
1: Thank you. For me personally, and I'm not sure this works for everybody, uh, it was a process of going back and analyzing every time uh, I had ever hurt anybody, harmed anyone, or any time someone had harmed me. Firstly, the harm I'd done, and going back through them. So throughout that year, I kept analyzing and going back. Once I had the turning point of thinking, wait a minute, this is me, uh, and so on, then first you have to acknowledge that you are responsible and take personal responsibility for the shape of your own life and and so on. Once that happens, it's a long process. And I needed the next year to keep go deeper and deeper into each one of the things all the way back to school incidents where I'd blamed a teacher or blamed a system or something and I look back and think well no one else had that problem. In my class I was the only one who was banging my head against the system and banging my head against the rigidity of it and so on. That was me. So it was a process of going all the way back and at the same time starting because of that breakthrough on the book on Shantaram So it was starting on that. And I was fortunate enough to be given a few pieces of paper and a pen, and I started writing it. And so I had a process of going back and accepting responsibility for all the things i had done and for, even for the things that had happened to me, saying that was me that had let that happen. And then uh, using that channeling it to say, now I'm ready to start writing something that's deeper than just the fictions i would written before.
0: How powerful is taking personal responsibility for your life, for your health, for everything?
1: Yes. I think it's simply required. It's required. See, your fate is the set of cards you're dealt when you're born. You're born with a set of proclivities, a, a set of you know circumstances around your family, this family or that family, this education status or that, this country or that country, the one leg, two legs, you can see, you can't see. The cards that you're dealt when you're born, this is your fate, and you don't control that. It's handed to you. How you play it at hand is your destiny. And either the fate plays your destiny for you, which you just let your fate play out your destiny for you, it will. Or you take the reins in your hand, take control, and say, I have a free will. I can freely change this behavior. I can freely shape the way forward for myself. I can freely say I'm done with a drug like heroin, I'm done. And I can freely do this. And it has never interested me since. So for anyone out there who's struggling with heroin addiction right now, I can tell you, look at me, the worst junkie you'll probably hear of, committing the crimes that I did and doing the things that I did. And yet now it's many decades um, since I've even considered, even thought of it. It's gone out of my life and it can happen for you too. You have to reach a turning point yourself. No one can push you there. No one can incentivize you there. You need to reach that turning point yourself. But when you do, and believe this, when you hit that turning point, you will remember that I said this and that there are people out there like me who hit the turning point who changed and who have never looked back and never even wanted hero for a second in their lives. And you think that's impossible now, but it is true. And every single person I met when I was a junkie who told me, yeah, I used to be a junkie, but I made it through, impressed me deeply. And when I did make the change myself, they were the spirits around me saying, you can do this, you can do this. And I did. So those those are the things that come from that. That depth comes from this, from how do you shape your own destiny? You shape it by accepting personal responsibility and by exercising your will.
0: Wow. Wow. So inspiring. It's truly so inspiring. And I love that you took personal responsibility. Then you did the inner work. You did the inner work. You used that time in prison to do that inner healing, that inner work. You went back and you reflected on all the times that you'd hurt people and vice versa. And I love that you did that because when we take responsibility for every area of our life, that's when our life shifts. That's when we start living a life true to us and on our own path. You know, we're on our own path once we take responsibility. So what if someone is sitting listening to this and they're not even aware that they need to take responsibility? How can they identify if there are areas that they need to take ownership of?
1: Well, it's in a material sense, you know, we have all sorts of psychological aids that can help us, tools for self-examination. There are lots of them. We also have meditation, which is in, in a material sense, calms people down and gets them into a state where they can start to investigate this. But it's really a very difficult thing. If people are not accepting responsibility, for what they're doing. And others around them can see that as they did with me. Others could see and they knew this guy's going off the rails and and he's not accepting responsibility for it, he's blaming something else or whatever. when When people can see this and you're not, it's very difficult to intervene, very difficult. I would hope that there is a new era of personal responsibility beginning at the top where politicians accept responsibility for errors and say, we made a mistake. And I believe that they would get re-elected the next time, very quickly, if they, if the top accept responsibility, if they accept it. We need this from the top. We need politicians accepting responsibility and not shifting the blame to various other things, to various other factors. I think this is hard. You're asking how does someone who doesn't even realise it, how do they reach that point? It's hard when you're in a system that doesn't reward taking responsibility. One aspect of this is if you accept responsibility, you'll get sued. So a lot of people are going, I, 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 I'll, I'll make a statement that says we express regret. But I can never express personal responsibility and say, I'm sorry I made a mistake because I'm going to get sued for that, if you know what I mean, in a litigious culture. And there are various reasons. So I'm not pointing fingers I'm just, and I can understand why there's a reluctance to they may think we're not gonna get re-elected if I show weakness of some kind. But this isn't weakness, this is strength. And if we are if we can encourage this in a broader cultural sense, then those the people who are str- maybe struggling with this or not aware will have an environment in which they can self-examine and accept responsibility. And we need to reward it. Every time people accept personal responsibility, we need to reward that. We need it with approbation and people saying, wow, that, that was good. This person said, I'm sorry, I made a mistake and I'll make amends and I accept responsibility, wow, okay, thank you, instead of saying, oh, let's pile on and sue them. <laughs> mm,
0: exactly. Oh, my goodness. It's, it's I know for me, I've felt a lot of suffering and I've felt a real struggle when I haven't taken that personal responsibility, and as soon as I have, it's empowering. It's empowering and it's confronting.
1: I agree, and I, I think one of the things that's critically important for those who are taking responsibility is to, wherever possible, surround yourself with, my teacher calls such people holy souls, but surround yourself with people who have a similar mindset about personal responsibility and so on. One of the big problems for me as a young person was I didn't really get any coaching or guidance in how to make friends. And I grew up in a pretty tough area where fighting was the basic way that people communicated. And so we fought on the way home, from the bus stop and we fought we went up to the local shopping centre and so on there was fighting was if we went for a walk around the area there was there was another gang and there was going to be fighting there was another group of kids there was going to be fighting. And I hadn't learned some of those social skills that are required. If I can just say this, having a membrane around yourself and your group of friends that's like the membrane around a cell, every human cell has within it organelles that perform functions and in that cytoplasmic fluid around that there is a membrane. The membrane is there to protect the cell. It allows; It's porous enough to allow nutrient to flow in, and that nutrient with people can be the nutrient of new positive energy from people who are givers, who come and join your group, join your, uh, your circle, and they're givers. They're bringing nutrients. The membrane allows the inflow of nutrient. It allows the outflow of waste in the membrane of the cell. Otherwise, the waste would accumulate and the cell would die. So it it allows these two things, nutrient flows in and waste flows out. The waste material in a group of friends who are building a trust circle is the ego stuff that gets in the way when you first know each other. And it's not required as you become more friendly and more trustworthy and you trust each other and, and like each other more, that ego stuff falls away. And that's the waste that goes out through the membrane. But the membrane performs another function. It protects the cell from toxic elements that are outside, from elements that may damage the inner working of the cell. So that membrane around you is your, if you like, boundary in what you want to set up. And if you don't set it up, the world will set it up for you. (laughs) So it's not like there's no boundary. There's always a boundary, and if you don't do it, others will do it for you or to you. So it's very important to say, what kind of boundary do I want around myself and around my group of friends? I want it to be one that allows the inflow of nutrient, but stops negative energy and negative elements from coming into this group. I want it to be open enough to allow things to to be expelled from that that we don't need, the waste things of ego stuff, and that gradually goes away, and we get tighter and tighter in our trust and understanding with one another, and so on, and our faith in one another. So not having had that at many times in my life was a big issue. Once you, start to create a boundary around yourself, a membrane that allows the good in, holds back the negative, and then so on, and builds up trust. Within that circle, the personal responsibility becomes a language. (laughs) People go, my bad, straight away, and so on, it becomes a language. People are so easy with each other to go, whoa, my bad, boom, done, finished, over, and so on. No more waste material of, well, maybe, and what are you, and all of that. So I think that's a very important thing Let those out there who have not yet built those boundaries, look at others around them who have boundaries like that and say, see, that? I studied it from other people. I saw this and realized you don't have to live the way I did. You can live like this. And when you build that group, the group sustains itself beautifully.
0: How do you find people like that?
1: (laughs) For us, I have a company called Empathy Arts. Empathy is a, a big factor. Another sure sign is that people give more than they take. It's a very simple thing. You know, how much is it about giving, what they can offer and give and share with the group, and how much is it what they can get out of it and take, and so on. And those who are givers, if you give to givers, it goes forever. If you give to takers, it drains away until there's nothing left. And then the taker will go to another giver and take from that giver, and then go to another giver and take from that giver. But when you give to a giver, it either comes back to you, or it goes to another giver. And so it becomes a giving circle. So giving is a really sure sign. There are a number of others, humility. You know, if people have some humility, if they're not, if their attitude isn't too arrogant or whatever, too prideful, and so on, that's a sure sign that that, that person is, is gonna fit in in one way, you know, I, I don't mean submissive, I just mean having some humility, not thinking that, you know, you're the greatest thing that ever existed.
0: Mm, yes. And that comes back to taking personal responsibility for how you're showing up. And when you are tuning in and and checking in with yourself, am I being humble? Am I giving? Am I being the best version of myself? Then you will attract people on that same path who are also being the best version of themselves.
1: Yes, I agree completely. The intention manifests the path. Your intention manifests the path you walk. If your intention is filled with violence, you will manifest that path. It will definitely happen in front of you. And someone is going to come and offer you a new gun (laughs) if that's the path you want. And that person offering a new gun is never going to go and offer a new gun to this guy over here who's on a completely different path because his intention has shaped a different path. So the intention shapes the path. Very, very important. And it gets back to, I think, two spiritual questions. Firstly, am I worthy? Secondly, how much giving is in my intention? Because the intention shapes the path. So as a small example, if you meet someone in an office space or factory, anywhere you're working, a shop, and, and it's a colleague, somebody you're working you think, I really, really like this guy. A, a girl working there might like another girl, and say, I really like this girl, and I'd like to get to know her better. I think I might take this to another level and invite her to go out to lunch or have a drink, and so on. In a material world, we may think, what you know, what's in it for me? <laughs> In the spiritual sense, you ask firstly, am I worthy of taking it to another level? If that person suddenly got sick, would I visit them? Would I still would I care, would I still be there? And so on, and how am I really worthy of this? Secondly, how much giving is in my intention? How much is about what I can offer to this person and share? And how much is about what I can get? So if you can answer these two questions and say, I'm worthy, I believe I'm worthy, I've thought about it, yes, I think I'm worthy, and secondly, I have a lot of giving in my intention because I have a lot to offer. Same thing with having a child. I'm worthy and I have a lot to offer a child. Let's have one. Um, <laughs> if you know what I mean. That, am I worthy? What, how much giving is in my intention? When you can answer that satisfactory for yourself, then ask it about the other person. Is that person, now that I feel I'm worthy, is that person worthy? How much giving is in their intention? If you feel your intention is full of giving and you are worthy, you feel their intention is full of giving and they're worthy, and it's bound to be a good relationship.
0: The truth is, though, that we are all worthy. So <laughs>
1: It depends. Worthy of what?
0: Love, abundance, you know, living a life that's true to us, that, you know, living our best life. We're, we're all worthy of that. It's all of the stories and the conditions and the programming that we've put on top. But deep down, like we're born into this world as beautiful, whole, little, worthy beings. Do you agree?
1: I think we may be... In childhood, and most often with children, very worthy children. But I think the assumption that we are all worthy, that we're all worthy, leaves out a number of factors. One is ego, and there are very, very few people who have been able to control their ego. And to be worthy, you really have to. And secondly, it suggests that you don't have to struggle to be worthy, it suggests that, well, I'm born worthy. Uh, no, it's hard work, being worthy. Being worthy of a child, being worthy of a friend, being worthy of your job you know is hard. It's not just that you're born being worthy. I don't accept this. I think it's um, something you have to work at, be conscious of, and so on. Are we all capable of being worthy? Yes. And even the worst among us, like me, are capable of being worthy. And can struggle back to find a place of worthiness. Was I worthy when I was running around the world smuggling and committing crimes? Of course not. I was not worthy, <laughs> in my view. I know that may that may contradict many people who say no, but we are all worthy. I I don't think I was then. <laughs> I think I'm more worthy now than I was then.
0: You know what? It's that's a really interesting perspective tilt because worthiness does take work. It does take self-inquiry. It does take self-responsibility. And there was, like I was just thinking when he said worthy of having children, it took my husband and I 18 months before our daughter came in. And those 18 months, I really had to work on myself. I did a lot of internal work. It was really painful at times very painful. There was a lot of shedding. There was a lot of dark night of the soul. There was a lot of darkness that I had to move through during that time. And it has made me the best mama that I I couldn't have even imagined the mother that I am now. And if we had have got pregnant that first month that we tried, I don't know, would I be the mother that I am now after going through 18 months of Really upping my worthiness and doing all the inner work. Do you know what I mean?
1: Yes. God bless you. God bless you. Indeed.
0: It's a really interesting look at worthiness. And I'm so glad that you brought that up because yes, we're all born into this world as beautiful little worthy beings. And we got to take responsibility. We got to make sure that we're living in alignment with our higher self and doing the internal work and being humble and checking our ego and, you know, making sure that we are being the best version of us in each moment.
1: Indeed, indeed. I think um, as a sort of clarification in a way, I would say that the inner self, the authentic inner self, is always worthy. But the inner self is not what the world sees or what the world knows. Your most intimate partner knows your inner self, over, and that's over time, over years, and through hardships and through trials, that that you reveal to one another your true inner self. So it takes years even for intimate relationships. So what do we see when we see other people? We see the ego. And to me, the ego is a kind of shell that we put around ourselves, and it's created by the inner self, and it's created this over time, as we go from the innocence of childhood to the lack of innocence of of adulthood, we start to build layers of this ego around ourselves, and it has two jobs. It's there to project us, and it's there to protect us. So the ego is there to project a story, a narrative of who we are. When people say hi, and, uh, and so on, generally, it's the ego saying hello. That's not a bad thing. It's its job. It's there to project and to say this is who I am. It isn't there to tell every intimate, horrible detail about your life because the ego that's not the ego's job. It's there to do that. But it's also there to protect you. So it, it projects and protects. Now, if that crust of ego becomes too thick around us and so on, the true inner self is almost never revealed to anybody and so on. And the key is to reduce that carapace of ego around ourselves to a fairly thin film that is required to get by in a hard, competitive world. We need some ego. If we don't have some pride and some vanity, we're going to be crushed in this world. We need a bit in the material world. But those things are not required in intimate love. Our most intimate, most beloved partner, we don't need ego there, and it, it falls away. In our relationship with the divine, when we go into a devotional space and we offer something to the divine, the ego is not required there. So, I I like to think of pride and vanity as two dogs, and I just tell them, wait at the door, wait, stay there, stay there. And I go in and do my devotion, and they try to creep in, and they go, no, go back, go back. And when the devotion is finished, they say, okay, come on, and they can come back because I'm in the real world and you need a little measure of both. So, this question of the worthiness, finding the whole thing is really about getting through to that inner self, which is always worthy. Your true inner self is worthy because it's authentically you. It is the real you. And around it is this thing built up with fear and desire. You know, everything happens to float between fear and desire for the ego. It's all between fear and desire. It's there to project and protect. And so when you can manage to get those things under control, and push these a little bit to the side. You're a centered person, and anyone can see that. They see the centered person, and we say in fun as a last thing, faith is invisible, but it's not. It's clearly visible in the faces of every single person who has it.
0: Absolutely beautiful. That's really important to note. Our authentic self is worthy, and I love that. And speaking of faith, you say that with love and faith, anything is possible.
1: Yes, indeed. Talk to
0: me about that.
1: Well, faith is freedom from fear, for a start. And the two things um, that really are going to pull the ego in either way are fear and desire. So how do we overcome these? Love will help you overcome desire. And faith helps you overcome fear. So with love, to help you shape desire in a positive way, you're shaping your desires because you love something, someone some quality, some country, some cause, something that you love, and so on. And what do we mean by love? Love is selfless giving, selfless giving. Like a mother who, had, who feeds three children, and one of them says, where's yours? And she says, oh, I had mine before. And then when they go, one of the kids comes back and looks, and mum is eating a crust from the thing because that's left on the thing because there was no food before, and she gave everything to the kids, and she's getting a crust that one of the kids left selfless giving selfless and mothers display that all over the world every single day and fathers and people who love each other and carers and everybody else selflessly giving to others and so on getting it's not about what you get it's about what you can give and of course you get when you give but it's not about what you get it's about giving selfless giving so love helps you shape desire in the right direction and faith helps you overcome fear And so with love and faith, you can do anything because the ego is your friend, not your enemy.
0: (laughs) I love that. That's really, really beautiful. Talk to me about presence because in today's world, we are bombarded with information. You know, we've got computers and smartphones and there's a constant influx of opportunities to pull us out of the present moment, constantly being pulled, 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 pulled. Being in the present moment and being with what is right in front of us is key, but so many people really struggle with that. How can we cultivate more presence? How do we flex that presence muscle even more so that we don't miss the magic of what is right in front of us?
1: I think two quick examples, and we could go on that for a long time because that's a really big area, You know, that being in the moment. It's it's a huge area. I think two things. One is when we're with other people, and the other is when we're alone. When we're alone, and when you're alone and you get an opportunity, if you have an opportunity to be in a relatively peaceful place, there may be a lawnmower going, there may be something else, but it's not bugging you. You're calm and in a relatively calm space. It's not super annoying. Have a notebook. Just get a piece of paper, anything, and either draw something or write something. Let it happen. And don't think about it, just let your mind float and so on. And that way of not trying to be in the moment will be so in the moment that it'll give you something that only that moment can give you. You'll write something or you'll do a little drawing or you'll get a symbol or whatever. There are things like tricks like this that help us to be in the moment when we're alone. With others, the fastest way for me to be 100% in the moment is to be an active listener, That is to listen to what other people are saying very actively. Every single word. What is the psychological significance? What did I hear a spiritual word? Where is active listening to everything that person is saying and responding to that, to what that person is saying with another question or a a, a tangential thought? It's the listening to others that helps you to be in the moment more for me. Because you abandon, once you're, actively listening to another person, you're not listening with your ego. When you're listening with your ego, you're thinking about what you're going to say next, <laughs> which we all do, right? And there's a conversation going, and this person's saying that, and this one's saying that, then you say something. And that's because you were thinking of that three minutes ago, and you already had that in your head about what you were going to say when you had the opportunity. Because, uh, oh, that occurs to me, and I'm going to say this. Active listening is not about what you say. It's about what the other person said and responding to that and waiting for them to speak again. And that active listening means that your own ego has been just been pushed back a little bit into the back. It's still there. It's leaning back in the seat rather than leaning forward and so on. And that active listening will bang you into the moment. It's your ego that pulls you out of the moment.
0: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I've found since I have become a mother, my daughter is 14 months, just over 14 months, and being present has been something that I've really had to be more intentional with and, and practice active listening a lot more. Like for example, this morning I am getting her breakfast ready and then I see that she is about to trip over. So I'm trying to roll up her pants so she doesn't trip over her pants. And my husband's talking to me and he says, did you hear what I said? And I and I kind of responded like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he's like, no, but did you hear what I said? And I was like, I'm so sorry. Like all of my attention, even though I I looked like I was listening to you, all of my attention was here rolling up her pants and, and just being with her. But like I had one ear over here listening to his conversation and I was just like, I'm sorry, honey, can you please say that again? But I found, you know, since having her, half of my body is always there. Half of my mind So much of me is with her and tuning into her and then the other half is over here. And so it's something that I've really had to work on since having her. You know, and sometimes my girlfriends and I, we catch up and they're mothers as well. And I had a friend who said to me when she had her first daughter, she said to me, I'm so sorry if it feels like I'm not present with you. I am present with you. But when you have a child, half of your body, half of your heart, half of your life is there keeping one eye on them. And the other half is here. So I'm sorry if it feels like I'm not present. And I was like, no, it's fine. You're here with me. I feel that. But now since having a child, I understand what she was talking
1: about. Totally, totally. Yes, indeed. And that shows the preeminence of the moment. That in any one moment of time, there are slices of attention that are required within those moments of time. And some of them take priority. And that's going, going to happen sometimes through biology through the fact that you are literally biologically connected to that other entity over there in a way that you're not biologically connected to any other entity and that you make another one. And that that connection to that entity has a supremacy. It is literally going to rise up and assert itself over other um, attentions and so on. So quite uh, once again, being in the moment can be about allowing myself to be fully in that moment. With the roll up of the trousers so the kid doesn't fall and hurt itself. This is the moment I really need to be in this moment right now. And yes, there's a talking moment going on over here, but I actually need to be in this one right now and so on and give it everything I've got, which is brilliant, brilliant. Prioritize the priorities of moments.
0: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But um, as a mother, how do I have catch-ups with my girlfriends and our babies play? So our babies are playing and we're having a catch-up. Is it a matter of saying and acknowledging that we're both kind of half there and half here? Is that how we do it?
1: To a certain extent, but I think what happens with what I've seen, speaking as an observant male, what I've seen with mothers is that they get a shorthand. They bang into each other, and they go, and sometimes (laughs) both speaking at the same time because exactly that's happening. They've got to focus on the kids and get this out and get the information, and they work out a shorthand, and it's amazing. It's sort of so quick, so in-depth, and they go, and they know everything. It takes like maybe eight, ten minutes, but then they can talk about it afterwards and say, and then she said and blah, blah, and they know an hour of conversation was exchanged in these quick minutes. I think a shorthand (laughs) happens. It's just
0: by itself. Yes. And my girlfriends and I call them express catch-ups or power catch-ups because we get together and we've got half an hour or an hour and we just like go at a million miles an hour and we get that. And it's just, this is the phase that I'm in right now and it will ebb and flow. And I know like when I do have a lunch with my best friend who also has a baby the same age, when we get that hour and a half together, we are there. We are like, I've got goosebumps just even thinking about it. We are like, all right, babe, I'm here. Like, cause we both know exactly what it's like. Cause it's usually little people running around I'm here, girlfriend. I'm right here with you. Let's go for it. So it's just a different phase, but it's so important. Presence is everything, just being with what is right in front of you. And I know as a new mom as well, there's a lot of future tripping. Oh, I've got to do this and I've got to make this lunch for her. And oh, okay. So on Tuesday, she needs a sitter for this time. Like There's a lot of that. So I'm just aware that that is happening more for me right now. And Doing the things that I need to do, like meditation and moving my body and being in nature and active listening, and, and doing a lot of those things as well, just to bring me back here because I know this phase in my life, there's a lot of future tripping.
1: Understood. But everything you're doing is obviously good because you look great, you're shining, you know, it's clear. There's such a clarity in you that's shining out of you. And it's obvious you're on the right path, you're on the right track, and you're doing this really well. I'd just say dig in and enjoy it right now because that passes so quickly. And so I just enjoy that, the fact that you have two conversations running at the same time and not get 100% of either one. Who cares? It's a baby! It's it's great. It's great. Enjoy this time. And it's obviously working for you, obviously. Oh,
0: thank you. Yeah, and it's so precious and she's so freaking cute and, oh, my gosh, it's just beautiful. It's such a beautiful phase and I just love it and I love being a mum so much. I, I had no idea I would love it as much as I love it and it's a beautiful gift.
1: Wonderful, wonderful. God bless you. Wonderful. Can I ask you a question? Absolutely. So of the different turning points you've reached in your life, can you select one turning point and tell me what it was that happened in your life? What was the catalyst? What was the event? What was the thing or the, something said or what was that?
0: Mm, there's been quite a few, but I think the biggest one for me was the one that got me on my spiritual path. And that happened in 2010 and it took me getting sick and ending up in hospital. Oh. And having my health taken away from me. And I write about this and share about it in my books and on my podcasts and in my programs. And so my audience are familiar with this story, but it took me getting really sick and having my health taken away from me. And not only my physical health, I was also dealing with anxiety, depression, panic attacks, and eating issues. And it took that rock bottom for me to go inward and. I was given a book that changed my life and put me on this path. Well, the book didn't put me on the path. I was already going on the path and I just kept on getting these little nudges in the right direction. And it was a really challenging time in my life because I was stripped bare of everything that I knew. So my health was taken away from me. My friendships were taken away. My, the boyfriend that I was dating dumped me. The work that I was doing, I lost that. You know, it's like everything was pulled away so that I could be stripped bare and start on the path that I was truly meant to be here on. And I'm grateful that it happened earlier in my life, even though it was very challenging, but it happened when I was 23, 24.
1: Fantastic.
0: Yeah. So I got my wake up call earlier and It was such a huge turning point in my life and put me on this spiritual path.
1: Fantastic. And thank you for sharing that. There are parallels here with early illnesses in children who become artists. When we look back among many of the great writers, um, those who were considered great ones, many of the great writers and other artists and great composers, there was a period in childhood when they were ill and separated from their parents. And as a result, they were forced within themselves, forced in, and it helped them to consolidate something within that later became a crucible of creativity. So it seems that there's a parallel with creativity and a parallel with spiritual creativity, with the transformation that's required in spiritual creativity to create a new version of yourself, that process. Is also created, spiritually created. And it seems that this crisis point is a, a point, and especially a kind of peak vulnerability that you can't use your strength of body or will to override what you know you should do. Your will is strong enough, or your body's strong enough to override, override. No, I'm going to keep taking that drink, I'm going to do that, I'm going to take that pill, I'm going to keep going. The peak vulnerability and illness, separation from others, from those who are normally there to either support you or, or help encourage you to do the wrong thing, and so on. It seems that these things are, are required. And I think the best spiritual traditions try to um, simulate this to a certain extent when they take you on, I uh, say, a pilgrimage or an arduous journey that requires you to go through those levels of penance and breakdown and so on and, and until uh, you get to a certain point where you can really look within yourself and see something that wasn't visible before. So it seems that there are a lot of parallels here in your transformation with this and also with art and creativity. And one last question, for you, what does creativity mean? That's a tough one, I know, because it's a word we use every day. But just in general, when you're dealing with creativity in your projects and and, and the people you meet and so on, what does creativity mean for you?
0: For me, creativity is a feeling. Oh, you know, creativity is when I feel the most in flow, when I feel like I am in connection with my higher self, when I'm in the moment, like that to me is creativity. And it could be whilst I'm dancing. It could be whilst I'm meditating or walking along the beach or cooking something in the kitchen. Like it could be anything like that, but for me, it's like the feeling is connection with my higher self or source or divine ultimate presence and that feeling of flow and beauty. Does that make sense?
1: It's fantastic. Thank you very much. I've thought about this, of course, for decades And never had that definition um, presented before. It's marvellous and a feeling and feeling to connection. And of course it is. And I think for me too, when I'm at peak creativity, if I'm composing some music and it's really flying, I feel, I can feel it. That's when I can, uh, before that it's still creative, but it might be a bit more mechanical, but there's a moment when you feel it and it starts to fly. And that's connection. And I agree with you, feel connected to something that's more than just what you're doing and so on, and that fills you, and it, uh, you fly through it and finish off your work so much more quickly, and so on in a burst that comes out, and so on. It is, it's, um, and it's something clearly that is connected to imagination, and to create is to take some, take imagination and make it real, to take something from that world, that imaginary world, and put it into this world, and it did not exist It's a painting or it's a whatever, sculpture, it's something that wasn't there before, but how did it get there Well, it started in imagination? And the creative process is how you take something from imagination and put it into this real world. In the spiritual sense, it's putting something often into another person. It's a blessing. You, you meet someone, you, you, or you see them, and you see, oh, they're a bit down. There's something wrong something and they're not normally down like this and you approach them and say, hi, and so on, put a blessing in them, give them some time and energy, put your hand there on their shoulder if if it's appropriate and talk to them and put a little blessing in there and have them smile again and leave them smiling and feeling better than they did before, putting that blessing in and so on. That's creativity.
0: Yes, absolutely. I love that. Thank you for sharing that. And I know for me, expressing my creativity Every day is very important to me, especially for my mental health. You know, it's very important that I express that each day. Something feels a little bit off when I'm not, because I don't know. For me, it's something that I love doing and I love the feeling of it. And yeah, it is. It's about imagination and then bringing that to form. And whether for me that's through cooking or writing or podcasting or a program or a product that I'm creating, it it all starts with an imagination, an idea in the mind, and then bringing that to fruition, bringing it into the world. True. So I know for me, it's something that needs to be expressed each day.
1: Agreed. For me too, every day. And one aspect is that now I'm aware, I, I don't think I was conscious of this before but i think unconsciously i did now i'm aware that a certain component of whatever i'm doing whether it's a piece of art a new story a quotation uh, a piece of music whatever i'm creating that a part of it can be in devotion that a part of it is you know i hope this pleases you you're beyond whatever you are god you're too big for me to even imagine and you're beyond wanting anything you're beyond needing anything you're god but i'm free you created a universe in which this little creature appears and it's free, and I can freely give it to you. So I do. And I freely offer this. So I hope it pleases you. A certain part of what I'm doing, everything, is devoted to this. A certain part, of course, is devoted to my loved one. And a certain part is devoted to the people who might hear it and feel it. A certain part is devoted to posterity. But all those parts were there before, except for devotion. And I didn't consider it. and didn't seriously think, you know what? Everything I do, if I can offer a little bit, and what that does is it shapes the work that you do. You can't do anything vile or inhumane because you couldn't offer that sincerely, you know, to the divine. So when you start offering a portion of what you do, so part of this is for you. I hope you enjoy. It starts to shape what you do.
0: Beautiful, because often we are doing something with an outcome desired or a purpose, but just offering it over to God, the universe, the divine source, whatever you choose to use, whatever word you choose to use. I feel like I could definitely do more of that in my life. Definitely. You've inspired me. I'm going to definitely do more of that.
1: Thank you. It's one of the questions my teacher asked that I I first heard him ask, and it's a regular question when he meets people. If he asks them a question at all, he'll often ask, please tell me about your devotion. He's not interested in their career. He's not interested in their possessions or, you know, what a kind of house they live in. He's interested in the quality of their devotion. And I learned a lot from hearing that, hearing him answer this question, ask the question and then listen and talk to people about <coughs> this. And sometimes people hesitate and say, what do you mean? And he would say, well, just tell me something you're devoted to. It might be football. I don't. Tell me something you're devoted to. Where is your devotion? Because that's what that's where I'll find the real you, and so on. And I think having learned from this and and studied this afterwards and working through my own spiritual journey, it occurred to me that what I was searching for my whole life and by putting myself at the feet of teachers, even when I was on the run, if I heard there was a guru with some answers somewhere, I would go there on my motorcycle and sit at his feet and or her feet and listen and learn. I never really connected until much later in my life when I met my teacher. But I was always searching and searching and searching for answers. I prayed with believers all over the world, although I never became one. I was searching for some kind of answers. And what I discovered, what I was really searching for all those years, was my devoted self. The version of myself that became devoted. And you can't be devoted to yourself. It's like and there are a lot of people say, and you'll probably be upset if I say this, but a lot of people who say you need to love yourself. I just don't think that's possible. I think love is selfless giving, and you can't selflessly give to yourself. I, don't, I think you can like yourself, and it's important that you can look in the mirror and say, I can make this work. It's not perfect, but I can make it work. And like yourself. <coughs> Sorry. I think that's, that's important, but I don't know that you can love yourself. And you can't be devoted to yourself. It's called narcissism, if you're, or self-centeredness or selfishness, if you're devoted to yourself. When we're talking about devotion, we're talking about what you give through love to something else with no reward for you. What is that? that there's no reward for you. And that is a key, I think, he, he, when he asks this question. Well, so what was I looking for? I was all those years looking for a version of myself that was simply devoted devoted to my family, devoted to the right things, devoted to divine eventually, devoted. (laughs) And, And now I know. Had I been devoted all those years, none of this would have happened. My brother has been devoted his entire life. He's a devoted man.
0: That's really beautiful. So what are you devoted to?
1: At the moment, I'm devoted to getting over this little cold that I got from working under AC and fans nine hours straight on the last album. And I gave myself a little call, so I'm devoted to getting over that. No, I'm devoted to the divine. Obviously, as I mentioned, to family and to my partner, but to, as you are, but to uh, the divine. I've found a way to do this. I was searching all my life for a way to offer something. Um, It never seemed right to be on my knees. I just couldn't imagine a God that loved begging. And I'm not against it. I just, it never worked for me until... I've discovered the conch shell and realized that once I started doing this, I could offer something from my inner self, exhausting myself in the process, offer everything I have in a way that um, that made sense to me. And so that's the source of my devotion. But of course, in everything I do, as I said, a, a portion of everything is this is for you.
0: Mm, beautiful. Beautiful. And obviously your work as well.
1: Well, yes, it's, uh, that's basically all I do. I don't uh, go anywhere. There may be people who think that, just put a a little bit more, because we're heading into evening here with a nice overcast sky. Maybe people think I live a kind of exotic life or something. I don't. Almost always here. I almost never go anywhere. Uh, People invite me all the time. Birthdays, lunch, dinner, I don't go anywhere. I stay here. People, uh, if they see me, they come and see me here. I'm always writing, working. The new book, The Spiritual Path, is coming out, and we're getting a lot of feedback from that. So I'm sort of doing lots of back and forth with lots of people as it turns out, there are people who see this particular time. There are people who I think are desperately searching for connection, understanding, help, psychological, spiritual help. And some people seem to have found a little piece of it in this book, which is great. We have, we're constantly getting new music. We have three new albums coming out in the next two months, four new singles, three new albums. We have videos coming out. We just finished a graphic novel done in digital form, which is fun. Uh, some serious artworks have just arrived from my collection of works that I did from Switzerland, and so we'll be putting some of those on display soon, and so on. So it's a, it's a constant. For me, it's, it's all I love the work that I do. I love, and I can't call it work, of course. I've worked hard in my life. This is not work. This is love, and I love doing it. Of course, it's long hours, and, as you, and you can stress yourself, to give yourself a sore throat and a cold, but it's not really work. I love it. And it's all-consuming, and I work from, move from project to project to project. We have three new books coming out, uh, romantic novels. So it's, it's music, books, sculpture, creative writing, paintings, videos, music again, and so on. And it's fun. It, it's a constant process. We and have, We have an open house here. We have a lot of people who come through, but they know that I don't go anywhere. They cover and go, but I always stay here.
0: I love that. I'm going to have to come to Jamaica to visit you, I think.
1: Oh my God! Yes, as soon as baby—what's baby's name, by the way?
0: Her name is Bambi.
1: (laughs) That is fantastic. I know. Gorgeous. (laughs) Oh, that's hilarious! Brilliant. So, um, uh, yeah, when Bambi's you know old enough to travel well and happily and all of that, please do think of coming to visit us. We would really love to see you here. And it's a buzz. There's a lot of things happening. It's a lot of fun. It's a very, very positive environment.
0: Oh, I love that. Do you miss Australia?
1: Well, yes. Who doesn't? I mean, you know, Australia is gorgeous. Just gorgeous. Everything you could want. I've been around most of the world. Anything that you could want to see, Australia has. You want snow, we got more than Switzerland. You want jungles, yeah, we got that. You want forests, you want desert, ha, 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 we got the biggest. You want uh, um, beaches, forget about it. There's, you know, 80 kilometers and then you pass the headland and there's another 80 kilometers of beach. It's gorgeous, beautiful, beautiful country. So I think every Aussie misses their the beauty of their country. And there's something about the big open sky and the – vastness of Australia. We love, Aussies love a big sky. We love a big space and a big sky. So yes, I miss that. I I do miss, I must say, um, what's, you know, the Aussie joke around the way that Aussies are. They're so open. You don't have, they're not as guarded as so many people are in this world um, where you go. They're so much more open and you can connect with an Aussie and Australian people within five minutes you can really bond and connect with them and you might have to spend three weeks in, in, with people from a different culture. So there's, I miss that too. I really miss my family who were there and so on. But I have found a place here in Jamaica. I've found uh, a people who are gorgeous, strong, individual. I'm all for the individual. Collective is nice, but I love the individual. I'd prefer to have a nation of individuals than an individual nation. And Aussies are like this too. Every Aussie is an individual and will resist being pushed into a herdish group. Same in Jamaica, strong individuals, beautiful, sexy people, proud of themselves, created a great country and kept it clean, green, the water's fresh and clean, you can drink it and so on. And it's a terrific, beautiful culture. So I found a place that really works for me. I don't wear a shirt. I don't wear shoes. And I have a red stripe on my forehead. You would think if I walked down the street in any place that's going to cause a stir, not in Jamaica. Nobody even notices. Nobody cares in Jamaica. Everyone is their own individual. Everyone's their own rock star and so on. Uh, But I I love it. I love the vibe. I love the people. I love the weather. It really works when I'm not under the fan, giving myself a rough cold. Um, I love the weather and the vibe and everything else here and so on. So I have found a place that for me is not only the place that I'm happy to live in, but it's a place I'm happy to live out my life in to say these are my, whatever years I have left, this is the place where I want to spend it.
0: Mm, Beautiful. You'll get along with my husband so well. He doesn't wear a shirt or shoes either, but doesn't have the red stripe down his uh, face. But but we can arrange that.
1: We can, if it's not required for him.
0: (laughs) What is your definition of success?
1: Freedom. Success is another word for freedom. Any person who is successful is free, and free is a big word. What does it mean? It usually means free will, that their will is strong and free. It is not controlled by others. It may conform with the views of others and with the lives of others, but it's not controlled by others. It is directed and controlled by the inner, authentic self and not by the ego. It's controlled by the inner self. A person who's free is successful.
0: Yes, I love that. That's really beautiful. If you had a magic wand, let's pretend you have a magic wand right now. And you could put one book in the school curriculum of every high school around the world. Besides all of your books, let's pretend they're already in the curriculum, which they absolutely should be. What is one other book that you would choose?
1: Wow, that's a tough one. That really is a tough one. In high schools.
0: In high schools. So that like 16, 17 age, you know, that age for both boys and girls. What is one book? that you would recommend in the school curriculum?
1: You know, that's so tough. Um, (laughs) If you're scrupulous about it, that's very, very tough because none of us are, we're we're all flawed. None of us are perfect. And to put it into the hands of young minds that are developing, and, uh, you know, this is critically important at that stage in their lives. It It will help to form the evolution of their personal consciousness. So it's very important. And you'd have to think twice about what it is. You know, it might sound weird, but I'd be tempted to put, if, if there's only one book, the New Testament of the Gospels of Jesus. He's my only historical hero. And I think if people had not, if, if he was, this was a work of fiction, and they said, here's the story about this guy, and it's a work of fiction, and this is what he did, and this is what he said, it would be one of the most amazing books that anyone had ever read, ever, and so on. Not just the events that are portrayed in it, but also because of the words. There are no other sources for words like love your enemy. There's no other source for this. It is unique. It's arguably the three most revolutionary words I've ever uttered by a human being. There are no other analogues for the precision of, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. There's no other thought for the precision of this. Unless you become as little children, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless you can find that, rediscover that innocence within yourself, how can you possibly connect to the divine? If, if you are f- full of your own ego maturity, you have to get rid of that and become as innocent as a child. When you offer something to the divine, you offer it like a kid through the divine and so on. These lessons and the Sermon on the Mount are unique. And for mine, the most positive lessons and words I've ever found in any text anywhere.
0: Mm, My husband loves Jesus as well, loves him. Like he wants to create a a movie about him and yeah, he is obsessed. How
1: about that? I didn't know that.
0: You guys are very similar.
1: The thing is, I mean, you know, what a great guy you did i mean what a great guy to get on your motorcycle and go for a ride with say come on jesus let's go for a ride what a great guy just everything about him and talk about walk the talk they beat him up they whip him they put a crowd of thorns on his head they make him drag his cross through the street they flog him beat him nail him to the thing and murder him in front of his mother and what does he say forgive them oh man talk about walk the talk i love him he wonderful, wonderful teacher, brilliant to the last second, brilliant. I love him. So, and and he's the only one. And what I love about Jesus, of course, is that he was so human. He lost it. He picked up a, a thing and started beating the money lenders outside the temple. This is the guy who said, "Turn me on the other cheek, love your enemies." He lost it, and I love that—that that he was human enough for this, but also come up with such enduring wisdom. such enduring beauty in his example. Amazing.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, oh gosh, we could go so deep into this. Like (laughs) Nick was reading a book like he was actually a yogi.
1: Well, you see, the the point is, the question here, of course, is that where did Jesus go from 12 to 30? The missing years.
0: Yes. Have you seen the missing years of Jesuit? Yes,
1: of course. And in India, everyone believes that Jesus survived the cross and uh, that he was taken down, that he, he survived, he lived, and that they then spirited him away across the Arabian Sea to India, that he survived that. Now, before that, in the missing years, they believed that from 12, when he addressed the Pharisees in the temple and astonished them with his knowledge, he went home and told his parents, they said, where have you been, Jesus? And he says, oh, I was down in the temple what are you doing down the temple? I was talking to the Pharisees. What do you mean? I was telling them all the scriptures. You what? You revealed to them how much you know that you're 12 years old. Twelve years ago, Herod said, kill the firstborn. And they're going to look at you and say, this is him. This is the 12-year-old who escaped. We've got to get you out of here. So they believe, the Indians believe, many people in India rather, believe that he was smuggled across the sea to India and he studied at the feet of sages there and came back as a sage with a combination of their wisdom and the ancient Judaic wisdom. And who knows, the, those missing years are still a mystery.
0: Yeah, exactly. Oh my gosh. Amazing. So amazing. Tell me about your day. I'd love to hear a little bit more about your devotional practice. I mean, you shared a little bit about the time you wake up in the morning from your cat, you have a lot of coffee, you get to work, but can you kind of talk us through a quote unquote typical day in your life and? a bit about your devotional practice and walk us through a day in your life.
1: The days themselves sort of make themselves, but yeah, I wake up early with the cat. The cat, My gorgeous cat Skippy, I was never a cat person, but um, I discovered this kitten, took it in, fed it, and now I love it. And I totally get cats. Now I understand. They're amazing creatures. I totally get it. I was always a dog guy. I still love dogs. But now I get the cat thing. Okay, all right. They are hilarious. And they just make up their own minds and do whatever they want to do. So, and uh, the thing about a cat is they want affection. They just don't want you to know that they want affection. It's like, yeah, I'm not sure that I'm going to let you pat me just yet. Oh, yes, pat me now. And so, so I get that. All right. My cat wakes me up. And our cat wakes us up, then we'll get through those first struggles through all of the accumulated injuries and broken bones and various things. In the morning, it'll take me about two hours of my second coffee to relax into the day. I love the hot climate here because I need that. Because I'm usually, it takes me a while to get organized. Oh, too many bones broken, too many things over the years and so on. So it it, it take me up to maybe 10 o'clock to get myself organized and loose enough to let's bang out some music and so on. So get the music going. Start. Um, work, I'm always working on a new tune. When that's finished, start the next one. So there's always a beat going somewhere and you'll hear that in this place, and it's developing and evolving and growing. When that's done, another one will start. There is usually an artwork set up somewhere that I'll do a bit on when I take a break from the music. So something else is set up, is an easel in the yard. Now we're setting that for the next piece after the last one was finished. There is usually a period where I sit aside for some writing every day, just get a little bit done at the moment, rather than as a something that other writers might want to know. Sometimes you take a break. I do, and I don't write paragraphs of work, even though it's tempting. I resist and just write sentences or phrases and leave it at that. And if I can get three good sentences or three good phrases, i stop. So I end up over time with something that can work itself into a short story or work itself into a book of quotes or something else. But I do that. And I think it's very important for writers at least once a day to put your hand on that book and write something. Pick up a pen. It might be just one sentence, but keep that going. Don't let that atrophy and keep it working. So we do that. And, you know, then there's a beach here. So go down to the beach. Uh, shamefully, I think I, I go like once a month and it's literally 90 seconds away down a little alleyway. I, I could go five times a day if I want. And I usually go once a month or something. So there's that. And apart from that, here, there's uh, people dropping in and collaborations. We have artists who come and stay with us here. And artists who are coming and going all the time. We mentor, I've been mentoring two young writers with their books, helping them get those books into solid shape, uh, terrific projects. And we go back to Worthy. You know, these are two young writers who have put in so much work already. They've put in so many hard yards already. It is their first book, but they're not just playing, they really have worked so hard. And the degree of the work and the worthiness is what impresses you, as well as their. You listen to what they're saying and you look at their emails and they're full of positive intent and you can see from the language they're coming from such a good positive spiritual point of view. So we do mentoring as well. I do a bit of that. That happens. The people come, they go, and so on. So a typical day we'll have that. As it gets into the evening, we'll usually start recording and do some video. If we haven't already done something in the day, we'll get something going and record something at night. So that um, we move from you know day scope to night scope. And uh, if we can, if there are people here, we jam it out in the evening and get some colored lights happening and get a jam happening and keep everybody um, moving and get new ideas with musicians who come and go and singers and something like that. And I work with Jamaican singers and entertainers, and I got to say, they're the easiest artists anyone could ever work with. They will put in, you ask for eight hours work, you'll always get nine or 10. They start early, they finish late, they work so hard, they love what they're doing. It's just brilliant. It's such a pleasure to work with Jamaican artists. And big up, send a big up to all the Jamaican artists that I work with. We love them.
0: (laughs) Sounds like so much fun. I am definitely coming for some dancing and some partying with you guys.
1: hundred percent. Let's do a collaboration with your husband. We'll do some music and you do the dance in the video.
0: Definitely. Definitely. I love it. I love it. You're
1: on. You're so on. Sorry, I'm holding you to it.
0: And little Bambi can make an appearance.
1: Totally. Oh my God, yes. We can dress her up in full-on Jamaican colors.
0: Yes. Oh my God, so cute. Okay, I've got rapid fire questions for you now. Just three little ones. Are you ready? What is one thing that we can do today for our health?
1: <laughs> that's so funny. You're asking the guy who has coffee for breakfast and lunch and ice cream at midnight and chocolate. Um, that's so fantastic. Uh one thing for our health.
0: Could be mental health. I agree.
1: I think that's the wellspring and that's exactly where I was going. I was going to say serenity. However and wherever you can find it, at least half an hour of serenity every day for yourself is just you put aside where, you know, you're not consuming. Let me say that. You're not consuming TV or you're not consuming food. You're not consuming drink, You're not consuming you're just sitting in, in your own serenity. If you can find that, it'll help your health in a in 100,000 ways. The immune system is so vulnerable to stress. And you know this. When people are feeling anxious and feeling stressed, the immune system is suppressed. No matter how well they eat, no matter how much exercise they do, if this is happening, it will constantly undermine that good effort. So for me, the one thing is to find a moment of serenity. And that wasn't a rapid fire answer. So it was a damn long one. I'm sorry about that.
0: <laughs> no that's perfect okay the next one what is one thing that we can do for more wealth in our life so more abundance in all areas of our life
1: it's a tough one for more abundance in our lives devotion the more devoted you are the more abundance is in your life the more manifestation the more affirmation the more every single day Yeah. Um, Every act of devotion, it receives an affirmation. You may not see it. You may not be aware of it, but it happens every single time. The universe responds to devotion. Everything responds to devotion. Plants respond to devotion. Animals respond to devotion. And people respond to devotion. So do countries respond to devotion. And so on. Nations respond to devotion. So that's the thing. And that assures abundance.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. What's one thing that we can do for more love in our life?
1: There are sort of, it branched as soon as, as a semantic writer working with words, you see branches uh, in front of you with on each branch is a word. And one of them that jumps out is respect. It jumps out immediately, among others, but I'm going to go with respect. I think um, we have collectively allowed ourselves to disrespect one another to such an extent that we're rapidly trying to find ways to control that with rules, regulations, blocks, and so on, rather than going back to the basics of just being respectful with one another. I think that respect, see, this is a very Jamaican thing. When you meet another Jamaican, you say respect. You you see a complete stranger on the street walking past you. And he may even, you can sense, you. if you're an empath, you're feeling this guy's very distressed today. Oh, wow, he's in a bad mood. As you approach that person, and so on, you, if you wanted to, you could provoke him. <laughs> if you say the wrong thing, you can provoke that person easily because you can feel he's on the trigger. You walk past that person and you just say, respect, and keep going. He will say, yeah, respect. you yeah brother, respect. Or harder of love, he'll say it in response. You just completely removed the pin from that particular bomb. You just took it away with that word. It's such a Jamaican thing to show. And how does it work? And why does it work most of the time here in Jamaica? Almost always with rare exceptions because of this. People show respect and expect respect. But I think of having seen the effect of it here, I think that's the key. We need to, all of us, me, starting with me. We need to show more respect for ourselves, more respect for each other, more respect for the planet. And when we do that, the love will grow.
0: Mm, 1,000%. Absolutely agree with you. Totally. Definitely respect for ourselves as well. This has been so beautiful. Is there anything else that you want to share? Any last parting words of wisdom or anything that you wanted to talk about?
1: Uh, Well, I could talk about a hundred things we're doing, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to finish it with just this. Anyone can look me up and they can see me on Instagram and they can see stuff that we're doing. And We've got a whole lot of new stuff coming out and I think people enjoy it. I hope so. No, the message that I would say is this. If there's one last thing, it's pretty simple. Never give up. I've been in so many situations in my life where I almost gave up because giving up seems to be the best option, if you know what I mean, just giving up and just lie there and die. Um, it just seemed like the best option, but I didn't. And I got struggled under my knees and then under my feet and kept going. And I'm so glad I did. Every day I give thanks. Thank you, thank you, thank you. That I didn't give up, that I'm still alive, that I can enjoy the, the world, that I can still offer something in this world, that I can still discover things and, and enjoy things and so on. This is the one aspect that it, you none of us can obviate from our lives. We must not give up. We're living in a world where giving up is now legitimized in so many different ways. And it should, it it can't be. We must not give up. So for me, never give up. I look back and I, I see those times when I nearly gave up and I know how wrong I was. And I'm so glad I didn't give up. So anyone out there who's on the brink, never give up and reach out. It's impossible to do this on our own. You may, you know, may think that you're the only person. It's not true. There are other people out there going through this. You're not alone. Reach out. Get help. If you're in in stress or in in trouble, reach out and get help, but don't give up. This is a way of not giving up, is to reach out and say, man, I need help. I need some help. And I swear if I'd done this before in my life at several times, if I hadn't been so proud and so locked in my own stubbornness, if I'd reach out and said, I'm messed up, please help me. I need help it would have changed my life. So it would have saved a lot of um, grief. And so never give up, reach out for help.
0: Mm, I love that. Beautiful. Thank you. You are helping so many people. You are serving so many people, your work, your books, your music, your art, everything that you're doing and creating is serving and inspiring so many people. So how can I and the listeners give back and serve you today? How can we serve you?
1: Oh, wow, that's amazing. It's so amazing, I've never even considered the thought. That's amazing. Um, Just, this is it. In your own life, struggle to know yourself, to rule yourself, and to be yourself. And once you do that, devote yourself to something. Know yourself, rule yourself. Don't let your fear or your desire rule you. Don't let anything other than your own mind, your own strong will rule you and then be yourself, authentically yourself, for better or worse. But it will always be better. Know yourself, rule yourself, be yourself. And then when you know, when you get that right, devote yourself to something. So if you're not already devoted to something, do those things and devote yourself. And then that would be something for me. <laughs> mm,
0: beautiful. I love that. Thank you so much. This has been so great. I have loved this conversation. I wish you lived around the corner and you could come over for dinner and we could make you something super healthy. That's not coffee.
1: And <laughs> That'd be great.
0: We could share some more time together, but this has been so beautiful. Thank you for all the work that you do. Thank you for your wisdom today. Thank you for taking the time. It's been an absolute honor sharing this time and space with you. I'm so grateful and can't wait to read your latest book. I'm so excited for that. So thank you so much.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me very much. And God bless and keep us safe. Big up Bambi.
0: (laughs) Thank you, Han. I'm sure you are so inspired to run out and get Shantaram right now. It's incredible. And something that we didn't mention in the conversation was that Shantaram, he started writing in prison and was actually destroyed twice by the prison guards and then it was finally released in 2003 and it became an international bestseller as you know and he sold the movie rights and used parts of the income to establish a personal initiative which paid for life-saving operations such as kidney transplants, treatment for HIV and AIDS and so much more. So this man is incredible. Go and read the book. Let me know what you think. And if you loved today's conversation and got a lot out of it, please subscribe to the show and leave me a review on Apple Podcasts because that means that we can inspire and educate even more people together. And it also means that all of my episodes will pop up in your feed so that you never have to go searching for a new episode. And please come and follow me on Instagram at Melissa Ambrosini and tell me what you got from this conversation. I absolutely love connecting with you and I love hearing from you. So come on over there. And before I go, I just wanted to say thank you so much for being here, for wanting to be the best, the healthiest and the happiest version of yourself and for showing up today for you. You rock. Now, if there's someone in your life that you can think of that would really benefit from this episode